Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, we have made it. We've made it through our very first year at Showtime. Well, we're, we're recording this on December 29th, right. so yeah, sure, we're, we're a big favorite sure. to make it through our first year at Showtime, but oh, really, good. anything can happen in the next uh, couple of days here, but, you know, assuming neither of us bursts into flames in the next 48 hours or so, uh, I'd say it was a pretty good first year here. Uh, certainly our thanks to all the people we work with at Showtime, Seth Nyman, Brian Daly, Courtney Mogg, all the PR folks, the executive team, the various on-air personalities who've joined us this year on the podcast. Uh, everyone at Showtime is easy to work with. Uh, they promote the podcast during live boxing broadcasts. Can't complain about that. Nice. Um, and uh, we may as well break a little news, uh, news that I'm sure every outlet will pick up and write about. Uh, right. Showtime boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Is coming back for 2020. We've been renewed. This is the first step toward overstaying our welcome on Showtime by at least three years like Dexter did. I <laughs> See, Dexter's off the air, so I feel like it's okay for me to right. uh, take a little dig right. now. And by the way, uh, first couple seasons of Dexter, by all means, binge it on demand or whatever. It's fantastic. But anyway, uh, we are excited to, uh, to keep doing this every week and occasionally uh, more than once a week uh, and to, to innovate and try new things in 2020. So uh, 2019 was just the beginning. Stay tuned uh, or, or stay subscribed, I guess, is a more accurate way to say it. Yes. And, and among those innovations, uh, you know, now that uh, Twin Peaks is on Showtime, uh, we are actually going to do an entire episode talking backward. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see if anyone even notices. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, this guy's made a lot more sense this week than usual. <laughs> and Paul is dead. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. All right. Uh, coming up on this, our final show of the year, we will review Saturday night Showtime Championship boxing card headlined by Javante Davis's 12th round knockout of Yuri Orkis Gamboa. We will hand out our highly unofficial year end awards and we will review and perhaps revise our fighter of the decade, a discussion we had briefly a few months back. Uh, but first, the big boxing news of the week which is that, as anticipated, Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury will indeed be meeting again in a rematch of their December 2018 Classic, which was, of course, scored a draw. The date is February 22nd, as long expected. The venue will be the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Um, Eric, in the grand scheme of things, seven weeks or so, which is roughly about how long it is to February 22nd, uh, isn't the longest of periods to promote a giant heavyweight pay-per-view. Uh, but this is a unique kind of deal. It's a joint venture between Fox and ESPN. Both broadcasters uh, presumably will want to make a splash. So do you think we'll all be drowning in Wilder Fury coverage over the next month and a half or so every time we turn on either of those networks? And how well do you expect that pay-per-view to do? Uh, yeah, the, the coverage will be excessive, uh, but also warranted, uh, as this is a legitimately big and fascinating heavyweight yeah. fight. Uh, apparently, the pay-per-view broadcast will feature the ESPN on-air team instead of the Fox team, um, which, you know, I feel like no good can come of me specifying which broadcasters on those teams <laughs> I do and don't like. But suffice to say, both teams have their pros and cons. And I'll just be happy if ESPN wastes less time before fights than Fox pay-per-view yes. thus far have and thereby gets to the main event at a reasonable hour. Yes. Um, your question, how well will the pay-per-view perform? You know, several months ago uh, when Bob Arum was saying you have to build this and it'll do two million buys, uh, we all called bullshit on that number. It was never going to be that big. Uh, 
I honestly was never convinced it was a lock for 1 million buys, but it could cross that number. Yeah. Probably should. Uh, with all the promotion, with the personality of these two fighters, with their first fight as a marketing tool, uh, I think a million or so is probably about right. I could maybe see a ceiling of about 1.2 or 1.3. Mm. It's a huge fight. It's just not anywhere close to a Lewis Tyson, which is what the hype masters want us to believe. Uh, right. But, you know, people will make money on this one. Accounting departments will be pleased. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to talk briefly about the boxing match itself, uh, this is going to be the third rematch of Wilder's career, and his track record in the previous two has been one of improvement, uh, especially the first time he had a rematch. Uh, in November right. 2017, he destroyed Bermain Stavern inside a round uh, after having been taken the full 12 rounds by him in January 2015. That was a case of market improvement. His yeah. second rematch, uh, the improvement was a little less pronounced, but still, in his most recent fight, Deontay Wilder knocked out Luis Ortiz in the seventh round after needing 10 rounds to stop him in March 2018. Kieran, obviously we'll delve into this in much more depth in coming podcasts, but is your early impression that Wilder will continue that trend of improvement, or is this fight something different? Well, the big difference, of course, is, as you said, he won both those initial fights before winning the rematches in less time. And I don't think there are really any neutral observers who think he won the first Fury fight. Um, there are plenty who actually think he was a smidge unfortunate to escape with a draw. So um, so I don't know. I think the, it's it's difficult to say because Fury is such a unique puzzle to solve. I don't know. Does having a second crack at Tyson Fury is he necessarily make it that much easier? Hmm. Um, I, I, I guess the inclination is to think that, well, you know, this time he's, he knows he was, you know, tricked by fury into, into making all these mistakes. He won't make those mistakes again. Will he not? I mean, I don't know. I mean, fury is such a tough one. And, and the other factor for me that makes it a little bit difficult to decide is, you know, you, you just touched on it. You said, well, he sort of improved a bit against Luis Ortiz, but I'm still trying to figure out what the hell happened in that fight. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like, did he do better or was he just doing far worse until he landed that right hand? That's still such a puzzle to me, that fight. Um, right. So I guess this is one rematch where past isn't necessarily prologue because, you know, in some respects, the past is as murky as the future in that regard, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating point you make about just like whether having gone 12 rounds with Tyson Fury in any way makes it easier to go more rounds with Tyson Fury or whether right. he's still going to be befuddling as hell to deal with in there. And then, of course, there's the reverse of whether Tyson Fury having tasted Wilder's full power. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for the rematch right. to know exactly what you're up against? I don't know. It's it's fascinating on on a lot of levels, and the fact that these guys already shared 12 rounds together just adds that many more wrinkles. Yeah, absolutely. We will, of course, be talking about that in some length over the coming uh, couple months. Uh, but let's, first of all, before we uh, proceed with looking back at the rest of the year and, indeed, the rest of the decade, let's just go back a couple days on Saturday night. In Atlanta, Javante Davis ran his record to 23-0 with victory over Yuri Yorkis Gamboa in the main event, uh, scoring his 22nd 
career KO in the process, but he left it late. Um, despite dropping the veteran Gamboa in the second and eighth rounds, uh, he had to wait until about halfway through the final round before securing the stoppage win, dropping Gamboa onto the seat of his pants with an uppercut, uh, at which point Jack Reese took a look at him, Gamboa, and decided it was that was enough. Um, Davis was certainly dominant. Uh, he won 10 of 11 completed rounds on all three judges' scorecards. But he only gave himself a C-plus for his performance. You can see why, right? I mean, Gamboa's previous two losses against Terence Crawford and Robinson Castellanos came by stoppage in the ninth and seventh rounds, respectively. And from the second round onwards, Gamboa was struggling with what ultimately appeared to have been a, a torn Achilles tendon. So given all of that, given that he was up against a 38-year-old guy who has been dropped now, I think, 17 times in his career, um, who was apparently one-legged for 10 rounds or so, was this actually, notwithstanding the fact that it was a win, a slightly disappointing night for Javante Davis? It's funny when you say uh, has been dropped, I think, 17 times his career. It sounds like one of those lines you do as an exaggeration, like a guy's been dropped five <laughs> times. He's been, he's been dropped 17 times. No, he's actually been dropped 17, 17 times now. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, was it disappointing for Davis? Slightly. Yeah. Um, I think some people are overreacting, uh, you know, taking one fight, which... He won in pretty dominant fashion, by the way, and deciding that it proves he'd get his ass kicked by all the other top lightweight talents. But that's what happens, you know, both positive and negative. We overreact to the last thing we saw. Uh, Davis did score three knockdowns. He did earn the stoppage. He was never in bad trouble himself. And yet, because Gamboa was considered faded and because the expectations for Javante were high and he'd been on a streak of quick knockout wins, it's fair to be a little disappointed. It's all in how you want to look at it. Um, You know, you can say he wasn't punching enough and wasn't aggressive enough. Certainly, I was thinking that at times in the fight. Or you can say he was patient and and he was getting Mm. work in. And I was thinking Mm. that at other times in the Mm. fight. Um, I don't think he was working to set up his power punches. That that was a real problem. And so it was a lot of single shots. Um, Still... A C-plus is maybe a tad low, being a little harder on himself, but I wouldn't go higher than a B relative to expectations. Um, I noticed that Devin Haney tweeted uh, the words front runner for Gervonta, which mm. I'm not sure that applies. That's that's not what I take away from this performance, uh, but maybe Haney is just trying to build a future fight. Uh, but the, the, the possible torn Achilles, or I guess, is it confirmed that he had a torn Achilles, or are we just taking his word for it at this point? I'm not sure. I uh, believe I saw, I think it was Dan Rayfield wrote something to the effect that uh, there was some confirmation afterwards okay. from him. But I don't know if that confirmation came from his team or not. <laughs> right. So. so if there is a torn Achilles, that that hurts the pro Gervonta case a lot, but I'd give more credit to Gamboa for gutting that out and not looking like a guy with a serious injury. He, he covered it up pretty well. Um, one thing to mention is that there was a crowd of more than 14,000 people mm. in Atlanta. So yeah. this was another win for Davis's selling power. Yeah. Um, but all in all, yeah, I, I guess it's hard to call the night a real positive step for him. Mm. Um, and we haven't yet talked about the weight. Uh, this this was Davis's first fight at lightweight after struggling for a while to make the 130-pound limit. And although he officially weighed 134.8 pounds, he initially tipped the scale at 136.2. That really isn't a good look, coming in overweight in your very first trip to the scales at a new higher weight limit. And on top of that, in between the first attempt and the second attempt, he posed for the stare down with Gamboa and initiated a shoving match, which... 
oh, come on, a- after the Shields, Habazine incident yeah. in Flint, when are we going to get better security at these weigh-ins yeah. and stop letting this crap happen? Um, but anyway, for, for a while now, we've been saying that it appeared Davis has put some of his immaturity behind him and, and appeared to be more focused and professional. We interviewed him in January. We both came away impressed. Yep. He'd done nothing to unimpress all year until this, missing weight temporarily and starting a near riot at the weigh-in. Uh, does this suggest that our views on his improved maturity may have been wishful thinking? And what, if anything, does it all tell us about Davis's future at lightweight? So to take the last part first, um, the future, I think, has to be at lightweight. Let's, you know, yeah, he, right. you know, I, I don't think that moving up to 140 is a realistic option for him. Um, you know, I was looking at the at some of the people at the top of that division, you know, Josh Taylor's listed at 5'10 and a half. Um, Jose Ramirez is 5'10". Um, Regis Progres is relatively short at 5'8". And, and yeah, and obviously height alone isn't the only factor to consider in such matters. And and, and size can be sort of over um, overstated in, in boxing, among other things. Um, but, you know, look, when you're 5'5", or so, as Javante is, you're going to put yourself at a real physical disadvantage going up against some of those guys. So um, I, I think he's going to have to, you know, make sure that he does make lightweight because I, I just don't see him being able to go up. So, right. um, you know, so part of the part of the issue in, in terms of like, what does it say about his future at lightweight? Uh, I don't know. Part of Paulie was sort of alluding to this. It's did you know, is some of his performances, low punch output, the fact that he did look a little bit gassed toward the end. Is this a sign of just, like you said, that general lack of professionalism towards his training? And if so, that's going to really affect him as up against some of these really good guys at lightweight. Um, he did look labored at times in there. Was that a case of his punching power not carrying up to 135? So he therefore he had to go later in a fight than he has before? Or like he said, was he just being patient? I, I don't know. Um, the other thing, you know, you talked earlier about how we always win or lose. We can often overreact to a result. And maybe we're, we're overreacting to all of this a little bit. I mean, he did make weight on the second try. Uh, he's not exactly the first person to hand out a shove at a weigh-in. Um, I've seen Bernard Hopkins do it, and and he's ultra-professional. Um, right. You know, Floyd Mayweather grabbed Victor Ortiz around the, around the throat at a weigh-in. Um, I, I guess, you know, the difference is that you always felt that guys like Hopkins and Mayweather were being calculating when they did stuff like right. that, whereas this felt like this was Javante reacting to something. Um, I guess if it were an isolated incident, I don't think we'd even be talking about it at all. But, you know, as you mentioned, the fact that these questions about maturity and behavior have dogged him for a while. Um, and like you said, when he spoke to us at the beginning of the year, he did seem to recognize that those were issues that he needed to correct and he wasn't keen on, on addressing. So once you sort of have that blot on your record, every sort of little error that you make gets magnified and is considered part of that blot. So I don't know. Let's just hope that this is an aberration. Um, it was his first time specifically trying to make 135. Maybe he just got it a little bit wrong and it'll be fine in future. And, you know, the shove was just a thing of frustration and bad security. Um you know, he did know afterward that he's only 25. And yes, by the standards of normal humans, that, that means he's a kid and at the age where people do stupid stuff. But as a professional right. boxer, 25 is almost middle-aged. So, um, you know, you don't have as long to, to, to you know, make, make mistakes. Um, the fact that he hangs out with Adrian Bronner doesn't give you an awful <laughs> lot of confidence. Right. But I don't know. I mean, like you, we both came away from that, that interview. I think we both really liked the the kid um right. I, I i want him to do well so hopefully this is just a minor thing and we're being a bit too po-faced about it and everything will be fine going forward 
Hope so. Yeah. All right. The co-main event was, uh, I thought, surprisingly entertaining. Um, Badu Jack was once more let down by his tendency to start slowly. Jean-Pascal came flying out of the blocks um, and swept the first five rounds of their light heavyweight contest on all three cards, uh, even though Jack did have some good moments. Uh, finally, after being dropped by Pascal in the fourth, Jack started again into the groove in the sixth and seemed to win most of the rounds down the stretch and punctuating that comeback with a huge 12th round in which he staggered Pascal, nearly had him down a couple of times, then did have him down uh, and then battered him for, for long periods. But it was not enough. Pascal emerging victorious by split decision. Two cards going 114-112 in his favor and 114-112 for Jack. Uh, not everybody agreed with that decision. Uh, did you? And also, you know, Jack has now won just one of his last five contests. He's won two and two. Is he like no longer a force at the top level or is this just simply a case of a guy consistently being in very close contests because he consistently fights very good opposition uh so i'll answer the first question uh, about how i scored it uh first i ended up with a 113 113 card ah. um but i don't know that i was as locked in as i needed to be to score carefully i was checking twitter a bit and whatnot mm -hmm. so uh to me you know certainly can't gripe about any of the cards uh the big finish made it feel like Jack right. deserved it. Um, but I'm not sure round by round if if that's really how it should have broken down. Again, if you had it two points either way, that seems perfectly within range to me. Uh, and it's just a bit unfortunate for Badu Jack that yeah, a fight here that could have gone either way didn't go his way. As you said, he did have some moments in the early rounds. I was yep. a little surprised that all three judges had Pascal sweeping all of the first five, that none of them found any rounds there to give Jack. Um, he did some good body punching throughout that I think yep. helped set up his strong finish, or, or Pascal's fade, if you prefer to see it that way. And what a thrilling finish it was. Great 12th round and a damn good fight. And a reminder that there's risk in announcing your year-end award winners in the middle of December. Um, <laughs> anyway, 70% uh, of Twitter respondents to a Showtime poll thought Jack won. Um, so with that in mind, you know, you ask, is he just about done at the very top level? It's it's hard for me to say that he is if 70% of people think that he won that fight. He is a slow starter. Um He's a fast finisher, though, and the result is close fights, and, and he's been a little in, unlucky in some of them. But um, I'd say he's still clearly a top 10 fighter at light heavyweight. Um, it's just I'm starting to feel like at this point he, he's never going to get over the hump. Right. That this is, right. you know, having close fights against other guys in the middle to bottom rung of the top 10. Uh, that's about as high as he's going at this point. Yeah. Um, so that's the analysis of where Jack stands after losing close. Uh, what about Pascal after winning close? Last week, we pondered whether we had been too premature in writing off his career. Uh, there were moments early in this fight where I thought he looked positively reborn. Yeah. Um, and now he has two wins in 2019 against solid opposition. Uh, the Jack victory coming after his technical decision win over Marcus Brown. How much more life does Jean Pascal have in the ring? You know, I, I think I just need to completely shelve any thoughts that I had about Pascal being over the hill or shot, which I did have. Uh, I, I seem to recall, you know, after the Brown fight saying, oh, the worst part about this is that Jean Pascal is going to keep fighting and getting fights. And, you know, I was thinking about that discussion that we had last week and 
you know, as you mentioned, like when we were previewing this fight, you look at his recent record. The unanimous decision loss to Dimitri Bivol and a majority loss to Elio Alvarez um, are not in and of themselves reasons to doubt someone. Um, you look at what else those two guys have done, and that's it's fine. And, and I think, as you also said last week, you go further back, his only other losses are Sergei Kovalev, Bernard Hopkins, and Carl Frotch. Again, no shame in any of that. So I, I'm sort of reassessing what I was thinking about Pascal, and I think he probably is... I think he may remain what he has always been. He's just not an elite fighter, but he's that rung below the elite. He's very good. Not great, but very good. And he's probably always going to lose to the very best, but he's probably always going to be at worst competitive with everybody else. Um, I don't know what happens next for him, though. You know, he's had such a strong and lengthy career. I was looking at some of the light heavyweight rankings, and... The people who are sort of above him, he's already fought most of them. Right. Um, Bivol, Kovalev, Alvarez. I mean, the only ones left really for him are Alexander Wojtek and Arta Berbiev. Uh, I don't like a Berbiev fight for him at yeah. all. I think that goes really badly for him. Agreed. But it probably goes badly for anybody. Um, Wojtek, I don't think would end terribly well for him either. But maybe this would be the right time to find out. You know, maybe yeah. Wojtek is, uh, you know, a little bit got some self-doubt there after after that loss to Berbiev. Um, honestly, look, he and Jack talked about a rematch. I'd be really happy to see that. I think it would be another really close fight. I think it would be perfect for, for both of them. Um, you know, but at the same time, look, if a, if a title opportunity comes up, even against Berbiev, I think it would end up poorly. But someone's got to get mashed by Arta Berbiev. And <laughs> Jean Pascal's probably earned as much right as anybody else at this point. <laughs> right. Um, in the opener, uh, Lionel Thompson scored a 10-round decision win over Jose Uscategui. Neither of us thought that was going to happen. Um, I don't think we even really contemplated the possibility. Did we just severely underestimate Thompson? Uh, or on the back of his loss to Caleb Plant, is Uskategi maybe more depleted than we realized? I wouldn't say he's depleted. Uh, I'd say he can't handle movers very well. Right. Um, and certainly neither you nor I were aware that Lionel Thompson throws the best jab seen in boxing since a prime Larry Holmes. I mean, that was a thing of beauty, really stiff. Uh, it set up the knockdown at the end of the first round, and Thompson used that jab and a lot of lateral movement to keep Uzkatsky off of him and pile up enough points to offset a really unnecessary point deduction by referee yes. George Chip in the fourth. Um, close fight, uh, but deserved win for Thompson. And uh, yeah, Uzkatsky's people might want to put him in with straightforward sluggers for a little yeah. while after this. Um, anyway, as you said, this was not a result either of us saw coming, uh, as proven by our predictions. Uh, we both got zero points for it in our little picks competition. Uh, we both got two points for picking Javante Davis by knockout in the main event, but not getting the round correct. Um, and had the judges awarded a split decision to Badu Jack, you would have gained three points on me and tied up our contest. But, uh-huh. but through sheer luck, <laughs> I got two <laughs> points because I picked Pascal by majority decision. And therefore, I finish with 70 points to your 65. I am the champion of year one of the Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney picks contest. I am officially smarter than you. Uh, and you owe me one dollar, one crisp dollar the next time I see you. Um, or or you can PayPal it to me, I guess, if we want to be more modern about it. Uh, but, you know, one dollar. Uh, I'm glad we kept it low because uh, uh, I, I believe you're good for it. 
I think one dollar just about covered will cover your drinks bill for a fight week, so I I'm, <laughs> feel pretty it's, confident about that. I, I would I would I would think uh, that it should more than cover it. It covers the tip <laughs> on on the uh, on the water that I ask for from the bartender. Oh, oh, um, oh wait wait I'm, I'm I'm just getting a message here. It's from the Premium Cable Boxing Podcast Prediction Commission, and um. <laughs> It turns out that you at no stage actually provided any uh, urine testing to VADA uh, for this. And so therefore, this contest, this has been declared a no contest. Eric, I'm, I'm really, that's just terribly, terribly bad luck. Um, I mean, I, I personally think the, re- the results should be you know, reversed, but I'm not going to appeal that decision because I'm, that's the kind of guy I am and it's the holiday season. But that's just really bad luck. I'm sorry about that, Eric. Well, I am, I am embarrassed for you the lengths you're going to save a dollar. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, it's the principle of the thing, damn it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Obviously, the uh, the dollar does not matter. It's about pride and principle and all that. But we'll, we'll, we'll do it again next year, and you'll have your, your shot at revenge. And as I noted there, it really came down to uh, quite a bit of luck. Uh, the judges could have just as easily... One judge who gave right. that fight uh, to Pascal gives it to Jack, and we end up in a tie. Um, so uh, there's that contest. And I should just also note that uh, now the... Uh, 2019 DraftKings uh, Showtime Boxing Pick'em is complete, and uh, sadly, I did not win anything uh, in that. I finished in 15th place overall, Uh, but uh, congratulations to someone with the screen name The Coup. Uh, He or she wins a trip to every 2020 Showtime Boxing event, so uh, well done, sir or ma'am. That's that's pretty damn good price yeah not bad at all um all right before uh, we close the book on 2019 uh, a reminder that you still have until the clock strikes midnight on december 31st so about one day give or take a few hours depending on when you listen to this to secure one month of free showtime which will enable you to see all three of the cards that showtime will be airing in january for no money whatsoever Bargain. Yes, absolutely. Um, if you're not a Showtime subscriber, uh, just go to Showtime.com slash Try30. That's T-R-Y-3-0 and enter the code SHOWBOX. That's S-H-O-B-O-X to start that 30-day free trial. Again, this offer expires December 31st. So don't delay. Go to Showtime.com slash Try30 to take advantage. All of that, of course, is for the future. Uh, but first, a return to the past. It is Sunday, December 29th, as we record this. There are no remaining fights on the calendar that should really impact things, uh, so that means it is time for us to look back on the year that was and hand out some year-end awards. Uh, these don't represent the views of Showtime or the picks of anyone at the network. These are just our personal selections, uh, and they're not joint picks. They're individual picks. Kieran and I are going to take turns revealing our picks, uh, and we'll be revealing them to each other for the first time as well. Neither of us knows what the other has chosen for the various categories. Uh, and in addition to naming winners, we will mention, honorably, some of the honorable mentions. Uh, I'm up first with the round of the year. And I have to say... Most of these categories were tough this year. Uh, There wasn't a lot to separate the top contenders, Uh, though, if I know Raskin and Mulvaney, we nevertheless made most, (laughs) if not all, the same choices. Uh, We'll see. Uh, This was certainly a tough one. I think you can make a good case for a half dozen or so different rounds, but I keep coming back to the third round of Ruiz Joshua 1 as the most memorable round, the most exciting round, the most dramatic round. And you can't ask for a bigger stage than a heavyweight title fight at Madison Square Garden. Ruiz goes down hard. It's all going according to script until Ruiz clips Joshua and scores two knockdowns of his own. And AJ barely survives the round. Round three, an instant classic. Uh, Are we in agreement on this one? 
Of course. I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? I mean, it's not just because of the swings in fortune, but... Uh, and the unexpectedness of them, but the momentousness of them, you know, mm. what what that meant. And I think that was one of those rounds where probably everyone was watching and saying some kind of equivalent of, are you freaking kidding me? Is this really happening? Uh, so, no, absolutely. I think just just purely from not just the nature of the fight itself, but also it, its significance. Um, uh, like you said, there were some other really good contenders, actually a couple of them quite recently, in fact. Um mm-hmm. Uh, I, some of the ones that I, I'm sure I'm forgetting quite a few, but the ones that really came to mind for me, there was um, round nine of, of Jeff Warren, Michael Zarafa, the bloody yep. terrific round that will go down <laughs> in history. Um, so that's a strong late entrance. So too, when we talked about this last week, the round three of FA Jagba, Iago Kaladze. Yep. Um, the 11th round of Nooya Inoue and Nonito Dandaiara was probably the pick of that fight, but there were mm-hmm. others in that. Um, I mean, there's lots. What else am I missing? Uh, you know, uh, that's a tough question because I jotted down three runners up and they were the exact three you just said <laughs> because serious? we share a brain. So, you know, that's how it is. So, uh, but yeah, no, there, there were a bunch of other ones, uh, worth considering. Um, but I, I just find it funny that, that Ajagba Kaladze was, uh, the second most thrilling third round of a heavyweight fight this year. <laughs> and it might've still been the actual second most thrilling round of the year period. It was right up there pretty close to, to our agreed upon winner here. Indeed. But round three of Ruiz Joshua one wins our round of the year. And of course that round ultimately set up the upset of the year. You said that a lot of these categories were quite tough. This one wasn't um, pretty obvious. What wins this Andy Ruiz TKO seven, Anthony Joshua, absolutely seismic shock threatened to completely upend boxing's flagship division. There are some other upsets, Eric, but really nothing else comes even remotely close in this category, does it? Well, there's one thing that comes uh, pretty darn close, and that's uh, Raskin staying awake for Canelo Kovalev. Uh, That (laughs) that was unthinkable. Uh, But yeah, no, Ruiz Joshua, this one's easy. Anyone who picks anything else loses all credibility. Uh, this, This is the only category where I would say there is one and only one correct choice. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to knockout of the year. Uh, and my pick here uh, might kind of be another upset of the year contender. The fact right. that I'm about to make this pick, uh, I'm not going to go obvious here. Uh, and I actually feel safe in assuming we are not making the same pick on this one. I figured as of a couple days ago, I was going to have to make a choice between the two Deontay Wilder KOs. Uh, mm-hmm. And if I'm factoring in, importance and quality of opposition, then, uh, yeah, Wilder Ortiz 2 would probably be my pick. But KO of the year is one category where the magnitude of the fight doesn't matter quite as much to me as the aesthetic quality of the KO. So I'm going with a KO I just saw a couple of days ago for the first time, thanks to Rafe Bartholomew's KO of the year article that ran on The Athletic, an unimportant lightweight fight in the Philippines, Romero Duno, KO2, Kuldeep Danda. Um, oh, I did see that. Did you see that? Yeah. I I've, did. I've never seen anything quite like it. The the way that he fell, you know, he had the loopingest of looping right hands, lands on the chin, and twists Danda around. He helicopters to the canvas and lands face first, head under the bottom rope, one knee in and one leg straight out. So he's kind of ending up in what looks like a yoga position, just absolutely motionless. And it was caught on video by what seems like an amateur crew at ringside. Uh, And the amateur commentary goes uh, and uh, earmuffs kids who are listening uh, at home. (laughs) 
oh my god, what the fuck? <laughs> that's exactly how he reacted to the KO. Uh, that's a good KO right there that makes a man say that. Yeah, uh, uh, excellent. No, you're quite right. I had completely forgotten about that. I remember seeing maybe Rafe or someone else, maybe Ryan Sangalia or somebody posted like that clip when it happened. I remember right. seeing that. I'd forgotten all about it um, because it was one of those things where I didn't even know who the fighters were really or anything. So, uh, no, you are correct, sir. Uh, <laughs> that, w- that was not my pick. Uh, there were there were plenty of good ones. Like you said, could have picked either of Deontay's KOs. Uh, obviously, you and I are both somewhat partial to the one of Dominic Brazil, not least for because we were there and mm-hmm. because we played a small role in its in its <laughs> meme ability. Yes. Um, there, there were a few like more high, higher profile fights than the one you mentioned that had some just absolutely brutal KOs. Devin Haney over Antonio Moran. I mean, ugh, that was brutal. Mm-hmm. So too was Junior Dortikos uh, ending Andrew Tapiti's challenge. Yes. Um, Vasily Lomachenko finishing off Anthony Crawler was pretty savage. Um, Jamel Charlo's knockout of Jorge Cota was was pretty phenomenal. There were a lot, but for me personally, I felt like the the best knockout in a in a, in a big fight for me was Canelo Alvarez knocking out Sergey Kovalev, and it wasn't just for the concussive, conclusive hammer blow, but it was the way it just he hit. It felt as if it came out of nowhere, and it did. But at the same time, he had been sort of slowly setting it up. And the fact that he produced it while he was seemingly behind and looking flat and and just as the commentary team was urging him to do something, he <laughs> right. did it and yeah. left and left Kovalev sort of draped over the bottom rope like that. Um, and so and I thought the KO itself was a thing of beauty. So that was my pick. Yeah, can't can't uh, argue too hard against a pick like that, because, as you said, the, the magnitude of the fight and the timing in the fight of how and when it was delivered uh, and how sudden how sudden it seemed in the moment. Yeah, that's yep. absolutely up there among the very uh, top contenders for sure. Well, neither Kovalev nor Alvarez nor indeed Duno were in my fight of the year, though. Um, I know we've talked about this a few times already this year that it felt there were very few, if any, truly standout exceptional fights in 2019. But there were lots of very, very good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of good contenders, um, which I'm sure you'll talk about as well. But for me, and I had, and I, I had like a clubhouse leader for a while. But in the end, for me, my fight of the year was a fight that in many ways was all the better for being so absolutely unexpectedly good. Uh, I fully expected, as we all know, Nooya Inoue to destroy Nonito Donaire. Um, and that was a prediction that had nothing to do with my level of respect for Donaire, which has always been extremely high. It's just that Inoue is known as the monster for a reason. But Donaire didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to anybody else. He didn't read the script. He didn't go in there looking like a guy who was you know, a veteran who was about to get blown away. He came out looking like a man who felt he was going to win. And as the fight went on, it actually appeared as if he could. Um, there were some tremendous ebbs and flows, some truly high-quality boxing by both men. Inoue apparently was having to fight two Nonito Donaires from the second round onwards because he had double vision, uh, which proved that he can dig deep and fight his way to victory, that he isn't just, to use a phrase we already did, talked about, a front-runner. And Donaire reminding everyone that he's uh, a lock for the Hall of Fame and quite possibly on the first ballot. Um, there were some plenty of other really, really good fights that I enjoyed, but for me, that ended up being... And it was a bit of a tough choice for me, this category. Um, I could have made a case for for several others, but but that's my fight of the year. Yeah, I, I agree with every bit of your description of both uh, the top fights of the year in general and uh, and the way that Inoue Denaire, Denaire, uh separated <laughs> itself. Uh, I can't remember a year with so many solid A, A-minus fights. Yeah. Um, 
And I just I don't know if there was a true A plus, uh, but right. certainly the one that comes the closest, the one that's at least a very high A, was indeed uh, Inoue versus Nonito uh, for significance, for quality of the boxing. You know, this wasn't a brawl. Uh, this was a boxing match with spectacular yep, action exactly. and drama. Uh, and for those moments, and you kind of hinted at this, those moments where you could hardly believe what you were seeing because yeah. Nonito was having such success. Um, so, yeah, th- having this fight come along in November with the year kind of winding down, it turned it from a near impossible choice for what's the fight of the year into a choice that wasn't that difficult in the end. I, I felt like this was a clear fraction of a notch above everything else. Um, but I could also accept as a uh, as a reasonable uh, option here for fight of the year, uh, Julian Williams upset yeah. over Jared Hurd, uh, maybe Taylor and Progray, uh, maybe Golovkin Derevyanchenko. Um, the one I don't quite see it with. Uh, I've seen some other journalists have had this as their number one or their number two uh, was the Spence Porter fight, um, and I, I, we discussed this at the time that it, while watching it unfold, it never felt to me like a great fight. That one right. was more like a very very good one, um, and all of those fights that I just listed were like very very good. Uh, not quite all time great. Yeah. Inoue versus uh, Nonito was the one that borders on all-time greatness uh okay on to fighter of the year uh for me this ultimately came down to a choice between three guys uh all elite stars in the sport canelo alvarez manny pacquiao and errol spence and it's always tricky to decide how much exceeding expectations matters uh versus how much it's just who had the best wins against the best opponents um like i think back on one year in particular where I let expectation factor in, uh, in 2007, uh, I picked Kelly Pavlik, who was the underdog in both of his big knockout wins that year over Edison Miranda and Jermaine Taylor. I took him over Floyd Mayweather, who did a little worse than I expected him to do against Oscar mm. De La Hoya and exactly as well as I expected him to do against Ricky Hatton. Um, I'm not saying that I made the right call. I'm just saying that's the call that I made that year. Um, I think relative to expectation, the winner for 2019 could be Pacquiao. Coming into the year, you probably would not have picked him to beat Keith Thurman, uh, but he did. Uh, And he also was as dominant as you could ask him to be against Adrian Broner. Um, But ultimately, both Spence and Canelo beat slightly better opposition than Manny did. Spence beat Mikey Garcia, exceeding expectations, I would say. And Sean Porter maybe falling a tiny bit short of my lofty expectations for him going into that fight. Uh, And Canelo beat Daniel Jacobs and Sergey Kovalev, pretty much exactly equaling my expectations in Mm. both. Um, I could go on and on splitting hairs, but in the end, Canelo had the biggest wins in the biggest fights. He was the defining fighter of 2019, and he didn't fail any drug tests all year. So I lean Canelo, <laughs> uh, but I make Spence a very close number two and Manny a pretty darn close number three. What about yeah. you? Well, I, I was also, for me, down to those three. I mean, there were some others who had very good years who, you know, not fighter of the year, but deserve recognition. I want to just mention Emmanuel Navarrete, if only for the fact that he fought four times in the calendar year. <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Uh, five times in the space of 12 months. Um you know, Josh Taylor had a very good year. Yeah. Inoue had a very good year. Um, but yeah, it was down to these three. Um, 
I was sore. There was a period there where I was thinking about it, and I was sorely tempted to pick Manny Pacquiao. Um, and if only for sentimental reasons, sort of like as you were saying, you know. And, and how amazing is it that he's he could even be under consideration at his age? Um, but then I also thought, you know, he he beat basically the two opponents he could beat at this level at this stage of his career if you know what i mean yeah. um he's sort of running out of people he can beat i think and uh, unless he wants to start going down a level and one of the people he beat was adrian bronner and you know he's adrian bronner <laughs> um so for me yes uh, canelo's wins were bigger um yes he selected kovalev very specifically seeing some weaknesses there and <clears throat> and he created circumstances that put him at an advantage and Kovalev at a disadvantage. Um, but he scored the KO when he had to. Um, and, you know, and Daniel Jacobs proves, uh, you know, again, that even up against a, a heavy bag of an opponent, that he is a legitimate uh, fighter still, a legitimate top-level fighter. And, yeah. and that win, even though it got a little bit overshadowed by the Kovalev KO, and he, even though we don't think about it much because it wasn't a very exciting fight, that was a really solid win for Canelo. So... Um, yeah, I'm with you, Canelo Alvarez, Fighter of the Year. All right, so uh, as expected, we agreed ultimately on most of these, but uh, not Except quite all Except your hipster choice. Right, exactly, <laughs> which I might have leaned toward in part to make sure that we wouldn't agree on all of them. Right, but... there you go. Um, all right, so those are our awards for the year. Now let's turn our attention uh, to the decade of the 2010s, uh, since that also ends this Tuesday night. Uh, way back in March, ahead of the curve, before all those other second-tier boxing writers and podcasters started talking about Fighter of the Decade, <laughs> uh, we did a long segment on the podcast about it, exploring the cases for and against seven fighters in alphabetical order. Canelo Alvarez, Gennady Golovkin, Chocolatito Gonzalez, Vladimir Klitschko, Vasily Lomachenko, Floyd Mayweather, and Andre Ward. We did not discuss fight of the decade, though, uh, so we're going to figure that out now uh, and also see if our fighter of the decade leanings have changed in the last nine months. So you're up first, Kieran. Who is officially your pick for fighter of the decade, and what's your fight of the decade? Okay, so I'll start with fight, if I may. Sure. Um, and there were, sort of going back, there were some legit classics. Um, Brady Provodnikov, Matisse Molina, just about anything involving any combination of Francisco Vargas and or Takashi Mura. <laughs> yeah. um, so for me, a very close runner-up was Anthony Joshua Vladimir Klitschko, which remains, and partly that's influenced by the fact that it remains for me, personally, perhaps the single greatest ringside night that I've ever experienced. It was a terrific heavyweight fight, uh, one of the best heavyweight championship fights in years, um, and a massive event. And 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 so for me, that that's definitely in consideration. But for me, the fight of the decade is Juan Manuel Marquez, Manny Pacquiao four. Um, it's obviously tainted somewhat by the controversy over Marquez um, and how he suddenly got that body shape and that mm -hmm. strength. Um, perhaps somewhat ironically, given the years of suspicion that were cast over, over Pacquiao. The atmosphere in the arena that night was electric. The fight was back and forth, high-quality stuff. Um, even after being dropped, Pacquiao had Marquez busted up and hurt and, and seemingly on the verge of being stopped, and then he just walked into that massive straight right hand, and it was just, just to see Manny Pacquiao just disappear from view um uh, it was it was quite something i lem satterfield was sitting next to me and i grabbed his arm and i go he's not getting up at the same time that's <laughs> completely unaware right he was saying the exact same thing on the broadcast um <clears throat> the energy 
the emotion in the arena afterwards was incredible. It was raw. It was visceral. And for me, that's the fight of the decade. You know, I'll, now I will never be able to hear he's not getting up Jim without in my head instead thinking he's not getting up Lem. Up Lem. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, um, should should I jump in with my yeah, with fight, before yes, you get to fighter? Yeah, yeah. because um, with respect to Bradley Provodnikov, Vargas Miura, Canelo Triple G two, uh, it is clearly Marquez Pacquiao four for me as well. That was the only fight this decade that belongs in the same sentence as Corrales Castillo, Gaddy mm-hmm. Ward, Hagler Hearns, etc. Those true all-time fights. This was epic. It had everything, including the knockout of the decade. Just a flabbergasting six rounds of violence between these two. Yeah. Um, so as for fighter, I recall, if I recall correctly, I think I said Andre Ward when we discussed this in, in March. Um, I would like to revise my pick. Okay. Um, there is a case to be made for him, and and we, you know, made that case for and against, and for Chocolatito Gonzalez, and for Gennady Golovkin. Um, but I do think on reflection, it is actually really just down to Canelo, Alvarez, and Floyd Mayweather. Um, so my initial argument against Mayweather when we talked about it in March was that he only fought for half the decade. Right. Um, but think about it again. And I looked at it, and I'm like, in that half decade, he did defeat Shane Mosley, Victor Ortiz, Robert Guerrero, Miguel Cotto, Canelo, Marcus Maidana twice, Manny Pacquiao, and Andre Berto. Um, and we'll pretend that that's when he stopped. Um <laughs> And not only that, he transcended the sport. He's still arguably the biggest name in boxing, and he hasn't fought for years. Right. I mean, still everyone's calling him out, not just boxers. Um, mixed martial artists still call him out. Um, Canelo was much, much, much more active. He went 23-1-1 in that decade. Um, and he sort of has taken the torch from Floyd Mayweather as the biggest guy in boxing. You could make a case for him, even though that loss was to Mayweather. I'm super tempted to go with Canelo, but... I'm going to go with what I, if I recall correctly, was your choice back in yes, March. Yeah. And, and that is Floyd. I think that is actually the right decision. Yeah, you're, you're right that when we did this in March, I somewhat reluctantly named Floyd um, right. my fighter of the decade. And I had Andre Ward second, and I had Canelo third. And I said, and I quote, it is absolutely possible for Canelo to climb from number three to number one on my list if he beats Danny Jacobs and then wins a third fight with Golovkin this year, end quote. Uh, well, he beat Jacobs, although not by much. Uh, and instead of a third Golovkin fight, he moved up two divisions and knocked out Kovalev. Uh, so I really have to consider moving him up. Uh, I do think, uh, just like you, uh, that, that Canelo passed Andre Ward just with yeah. what he did this year, pushed him uh, a level above Andre for the decade as a whole. Uh, but then, you know, when I have my top two, and one of them won 11 or 12 right. rounds out of 12 against the other, even though timing was a huge part of it, that yeah. it was too soon for Canelo. Uh, I just can't convince myself that Canelo is the right pick when he lost that badly head-to-head with the other guy in the, in the discussion. So as much for star power and money generating as anything, uh, Mayweather is my fighter of the decade. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a great case to be made for Canelo yeah. that – in a few years, we may look back on the 2010s as the decade of Canelo, that we will ultimately remember him and not Floyd as the defining boxer of these 10 years. We don't we don't have that perspective yet to know for sure. At the moment, Mayweather still feels like the defining fighter of the decade, yeah. but it's really close, and I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, with given a few years to reflect on it, uh, if my perspective shifts a little bit. So we're actually going to be sending a little 
thank you note and a reward to Romero Duno without for in, ensuring that there was at least one <laughs> element yep. of disagreement. Not only just looking back over the last year, looking back over the last decade, we still couldn't do it, could we? Oh dear. Fight, fight of the decade was frankly kind of easy. No. <laughs> um, I, I'd be curious if anyone out there thinks something other than Marquez Pacquiao four was yeah. the fight of the decade. But yeah, yeah, fighter was a tough debate, and yet we still landed in the same. And yeah, with there after we go. after disagreeing in March, you teased you I teased know. a potential disagreement, and then you came exactly. around. I had you just where I wanted you. Uh, here we go again. Time. Here we go. All <laughs> right, uh, that will do it for uh, this week's uh, agreement fest, and for this year <laughs> and the sixty-two episodes of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney we produced this year. Uh, as mentioned at the top of the show, we will be back in twenty twenty. You can continue to listen to the podcast for free, you lucky people. But one final reminder, if you are not a Showtime subscriber, be sure to act by year's end to get your free one-month trial of Showtime. Just go to showtime.com slash try30 and enter the code SHOWBOX. All right. We will be back next week, next year even, to preview what we hope, at the third time of asking, will actually be a clash between Clarissa Shields and Ivana Havazin, the first fight on Showtime's docket in 2020. Until then, for the final time in 2019, thank you for listening.